Well, hey, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, and it's page 955. Page 955, 1 Corinthians 7. We're continuing a series called A Beautiful Mess. That's an awesome sermon series name, A Beautiful Mess, and an apt description of the church. And if you're a Christian, it's what you are. You're a beautiful mess. Uh, you're a mess. God's working in your life, and yet it's beautiful. God has made you in his image and remade you in Jesus, and that's what we are together. That's what the church is. And the church in Corinth is a mess. They have some wacky issues, and the Apostle Paul is trying to help them. And we're going to see. I'm just going to read this passage, and we're going to dive in. It's a very relevant topic for today. So would you follow along with me? I'll read these first few paragraphs. 1 Corinthians 7, page 955. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, not I, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as, as it is, they are holy. For if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases... The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And this is God's word. Last summer, June 2015, Aziz Ansari came out with this book. He's a stand-up comedian. You might know him as Tom Haverford in the show Parks and Rec. And it wasn't just his stand-up routine, though, in the book. He teamed up with a sociologist to write a book on modern romance, and he holds up a couple of ironies. One, one irony is this. We are spending more time and more money searching for a mate than at any other time in human history. People are spending more uh, of their hours and more of their money to try to find someone than any, in any other time, and we have more technology to help us. If you have the device known as a smartphone, you basically have a 24-7 singles bar in your pocket. <laughs> and yet, though we're trying harder and spending more money, we are, quote, having a harder and harder time finding someone to settle down with than ever before. 
and his parents are from India. They had an arranged marriage, and he talks about they were like, they never dated. They're totally happy. They love each other. And he, he, he talks about his own search and how long it's taken. Um, marriage and singleness. The Corinthian church said, hey, could you help us out with this? And there were some people in the church that are going to tend to idolize marriage. The Jews tend to idolize marriage. The Greeks tend to idolize singleness. It's like, hey, if you're a real Christian, you can... That was their saying, quote, hey, it's, a, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was said by the Greeks in Corinth. They would say, yeah, that's hardcore. You can be an ascetic, this monk-like spiritual person that can say no to your physical desires. If you can pull that off, that's awesome. And so the, the Jews would tend to idolize marriage. The Greeks would tend to idolize singleness. And they need help. And how, how are we supposed to, with God's wisdom, think about these two states. Now, it's important, especially for us today, to think about singleness. There's more single people than ever. For the first time in 2014, the number of unmarried American adults outnumbered those who were married. So as of 2014, there's more single adults than married adults. And even if you are married, uh, chances are you're not going to go to be with the Lord together. One of you is going to be single again. And even for those who eventually will get married, when they do that is getting pushed uh, to an older age. Five decades ago, 72% of men and 87% of women had gotten married by age 25. Now it's the inverse of that. 2012, 78% of men were single, and 67% of women were single. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul is trying to help this church where people come from different angles, some of them idolize marriage, some idolize singleness. How do we think about this wisely with God's wisdom? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to run around these four bases. How is marriage and singleness described Okay, the description of marriage and singleness, the view of it, the view of marriage and singleness, the problem, okay, the problem now in our approach to how we think about marriage and singleness, and wisdom forward. So the description, the view, the problem, and the wisdom that God offers. First, the description. How is the decision to be married or single described? Two ways, real quick. One, it's a gift. Paul says in verse 7, each one has his own gift from God, one of you of one kind and one of another. Some of you have been given the gift of marriage. Some of you have been given the gift of singleness. To be married, you have to have find someone else who has that same gift. Hey, we're both at the same point in life. We both want to do this. We've talked some other people into that this is a reasonable, good idea somehow, and it's a gift. You can't, you can't just do it on your own. You have to find somebody. In the same way, singleness is a gift. And the Apostle Paul says he loves that gift. He wishes more people could be like him. It's not a white elephant gift. You can't say, hey, you want to swap gifts. It was a rough weekend with the spouse. 
and his or her problems or addictions or in this low point, maybe I could just ease into singleness for a while. And a single person can't say, hey, do you want to swap gifts? Uh, it is a gift from the Lord. Okay, the gift, you need to remember who gives that gift. God, that's the implication. It's also, it's very clearly here, a decision. So he says, hey, if anyone thinks he's not behaving right towards the one he's engaged to, if your passions are strong, if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. Yeah, you want to get married? He said, go ahead. Uh, God doesn't make this decision for you. This is a decision for you to make. Don't wait um, for pixie dust from Disney to fall down upon you where you just know. No, you actually have to decide. It's a decision to make, okay? And those, those two perspectives balance each other. It's a gift from the Lord and also a decision for you to make. And even just that can be freeing for a lot of people. Uh, it's okay. I'll, a lot of times people are married, and I find, in my experience, I have to encourage people towards it much more often than talk people out of it. Then in, our, in this cultural moment, most often people are afraid. And it might be because they've been around train wreck marriages. That it just freaks them out about the whole thing. And the fact that they have to decide, and it might still be a good idea, even though they're nervous or afraid, is actually freeing. The fact that it's a decision to make, and God can show up in it, is super helpful to a lot of people. And here's the view of marriage and singleness behind it. Okay, What is the view of marriage and singleness? It's in the, in the scriptures... It's, the scriptures have a super high view of both. This is important to note because cultures tend to make an idol out of one gift or the other. You see here a high view of marriage and a, a, a biblical definition of marriage is the covenant of companionship. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's a, the covenant of companionship, and it's about oneness. Some cultures emphasize the covenant. Okay, and we don't care if you guys have actually had an in-depth conversation, but our two families have think this is a good idea, and we're going to arrange it, and we trust you'll get to know each other, and it'll be cool. And it's what's emphasized in those cultures, the covenant. It's super hard to get divorced, because what's emphasized is the covenant, the, the contractual nature of it, the agreement uh, before God and before society. Other cultures, like ours, we emphasize the companionship to the point where, like, the covenant's not a big deal. So statements like, hey, if you love each other, like, marriage is just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. And it's about us being in love and loving each other. It's just a piece of paper. No, it's more than a piece of paper. It's more than a piece of paper. It is a covenant. And... Uh, where there's completion across gender, a oneness that's meant to display gospel beauty to the world. That's what marriage is about. And marriage is good enough, he can say to the group of Corinthians that were like, well, hey, if it's, if it's good, quote, they had written to him, so hey, isn't it good not to have sex with a woman? 
So maybe married couples should have um, prayer marathons where they just, hey, let's avoid sexual activity for the next two months and just pray a lot. And the Apostle Paul says, as into singleness as he is, he's like, that's not really a good idea. He's like, hey, your body belongs to her and her body belongs to you and fill your, your calling to each other in that. And you shouldn't, maybe for a short time, you could agree together to do that, but then go back and be together. And so marriage is honored, and our, and our bodily desires are not, they need to be directed and controlled, but there's nothing inherently wrong with them. And what's behind this is the idea is that our physical desires are inherently weak or bad and need to be squashed. It's like, no. Is actually made by God and from God, need to be directed, but they're good. And so even the single apostle has a high view of marriage, and he also has a high view of singleness, and he enjoys being single. He says, now, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. He's content. And one thing that we need to think about, because this gives us a vision of the church, the beautiful mess that is the church, he has a rich relational life with deep friendships. He can write a letter to Timothy, and he said, hey, the last time you saw me, and I remember your tears. And those tears were probably Timothy being sad because he wasn't going to see Paul again. And he's, he, the Apostle Paul is very good at remembering names. And at the end of letters, he'll mention a lot of people. The end of the book of Romans is a whole chapter of honoring people, thanking people, trying to connect people. Hey, you should, you should really be thankful uh, for that deaconess who's a servant who's helped us out so much. And you should remember, they were, hey, this guy right here, he was a Christian before me. And he has deep friendships, and he enjoys the community of God, and he's not, he's not lonely. And so he upholds singleness. And one of the advantages of singleness is talked about later in this chapter there's a freedom from worldly concern. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. I would spare you that. It's true. You think your life's complicated now? I think it's a big deal to like move, um, get married, have a bunch of kids. It's harder. And you have a freedom to serve the Lord and to focus on the community of God that is at the church when you're single that you don't when you're married. Now, uh, what would it look like to be a countercultural community where we try to avoid both those errors? In America, it's super cool to be single because the thought is you can do whatever you want sexually. What it would it look like for Liberty Harrisburg to be a countercultural community where we don't make any of those errors? The church in America tends to make an idol out of marriage, right? So single people um, are treated a little bit weird sometimes. It's almost like they have like a second-class citizen jersey that they need to wear in church. You know? That is wrong. That is unbiblical. Um, just not healthy. What would it look like to really honor singleness and to think, think of like, you know what? That God's probably going to give that, and he does give this gift to people forever. It's unrealistic and actually unbiblical to assume that everyone's going to get married. And you're actually 
called to, whether you're married or single or not, to, to be friends with people in the other place in life. Um, I remember the, a sad conversation I had with a married woman who said, as soon as I got married, all my friendships, healthy friendships with men dried up. I was like, I'm like invisible. I wear like an invisibility cloak at church to men. It probably has something to do with how often men objectify women and their potentialities there need to be guarded against. It's not like, you know, uh, you should be talking to someone else's wife as a man late night on the phone. Okay, there's some potential you got to like respect that's a woman, you're a man. And yet, what we see modeled in the scriptures is pure, uh, wise friendship with people from the opposite sex. What would it look like to be a a community that's countercultural where we honor singleness and honor marriage? We're going to get back to that. Um, Let's pull back and look at what's the problem in this cultural moment. And this is the problem that dooms a lot of modern dating. And it's a problem in actually what we seek once we're married. Okay, what dooms a lot of dating? And I just want to note that a lot of people are trying to figure this out. There's a sense of lostness. In the present issue of The Atlantic, there's a feature article called Why is Dating in the App Era Such Hard Work? Finding love in the post-romantic, post-marital age. We've got the apps, and we've got all these connections, and you can, you know, swipe right and connect with all these available people in your city. Why isn't it working? Why is it so confusing? Why is it so fruitless? One, uh, there's two books written, two authors that they're really shaped the article around. Moira Weigel wrote a book called Labor of Love, Invention of Dating, The Invention of Dating. She just thinks through dating and her own story. And a great quote she has is, most of my friends agree that dating feels like experimental theater. You and a partner show up every night with different conflicting scripts. You do your best. Dating feels like improv. Like no one knows, you show up, what are we doing here? where is this going? How do you get to the next step? Like, what is even the goal? And so the picture she's painting, is it seems like everyone's kind of fumbling around, and there's a sense of lostness. Now, why is that? I'm going to point out, biblically, what I think are a few of the reasons. One is, in this cultural moment, we're looking to fulfill a void the wrong way. What's the void? Everything wrong with you. And um, the search for your deepest fulfillment. And how do we tend to, what's our culture say? What's the answer? Well, if we had less taboos and more freedom, if there is just, if you could just follow your sexual desires, however those are expressed, if there is no governor on that, no break on that, would that be fulfilling and satisfying? And actually, the pioneers of that 
and it's actually true that um, in all sin, we get a taste of this emptiness, report back, it's not working so, so great. Emily Witt wrote a book called Future Sex. Like, where are the sexual mores we have? Where are the expectations? Where is this going to take us as a culture? Is this there a future post-marital age? Which is really bold to say as a cultural moment. Like, is marriage itself, are we going to move past marriage itself? Is marriage actually from God, and that's why it surfaces in all cultures in history? Or is it something that we're going to actually move past, like leg warmers in the 80s? We're going to phase that out. We're going to get past that. And she writes, I had not sought so much choice for myself. And she explores different, like, um, different swingers clubs and fetishes. And she says, I not sought so much choice for, me, for myself. And when I found myself with total sexual freedom, I was unhappy. She confesses that in the book. Uh, I was unhappy. Now, so I'm going to submit, it's not with more freedom Freedom is a, if for Americans, it's like a universal good. You can't have too much freedom. And we're like cooks where to make the stew better, that's the one thing we always need to add, just more freedom. It's like a cook saying, more salt. Oh, it, it's bad? You're unhappy? Oh, just have more freedom. You haven't explored enough. You haven't taken it further enough. She's like, actually, no. Oh. We're looking to fulfill a void the wrong way. Actually, what we need is not more freedom. Um, We need God. We need other people too. Women need women's friendships. Men need men's friendships. We need those across gender. And we need to have realistic expectations of what marriage will do. In May, one of the most emailed articles... Uh, New York Times articles, was this philosopher guy that lives in Britain. He's on the B- BC, BBC a bunch. His name's Elaine de Botton. And he wrote an article called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And his whole point is, there's not someone perfectly compatible to you out there. And if you just find them, it will be easy and fulfilling and you'll never have to work at it. You won't be challenged. And you just need to find that person. Um, he's like, we actually need to blow up that idea. Uh, compatibility is an achievement of loving each other. It's not the precondition. You know, it's not what you have first. Oh, we're perfectly compatible. And he points out, this is very interesting. He's writing from a secular point of view, but it's fascinating what he says. This is what we need to let go of as a culture. That a perfect perfect being exists who can meet all our needs and satisfy our every yearning. <laughs> you just find someone. Can you imagine saying that on a first date? Like, look, I'm not trying to be crazy or anything. All I'm looking for is someone to completely fulfill me as a human being. <laughs> That's all. And we ought to chuckle our, at ourselves as Christians 
because, hey, the last time we checked, a perfect being that exists and can meet all our needs and satisfies our every yearning. The last time we checked, isn't that the Sunday school answer, God? Isn't it supposed to be God? Isn't it the one who completes us? And when that's the quest, and this is what makes marriage harder than it already will be, and what makes dating impossible, it makes you super, super picky. It makes you super picky. Uh, Jerry's character on the sitcom Seinfeld was famous for this, and he's, it, the show pointed, was pointing at our pickiness. Do you remember why Jerry broke up with his girlfriends? Always different reasons. Uh, this has been written about, uh, there's one article online, the 23 most ridiculous reasons why Jerry dumped someone on Seinfeld. Here are a few. One of his girlfriends liked a Dockers commercial. Gone. Uh, another one had man's hands. Another one, it was eating peas, one pea at a time. He broke up with a girl for being a low talker. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? What's up? He broke up with a girl for being liked by his parents. They like you. Must be something wrong with you. It's a good sign. That makes you super picky. It's an impossible quest. And it's, there's even a secular philosopher saying, the whole, what we're seeking out of marriage is impossible. Now, how do we seek to be guided in this quest? The culture says the only thing that we are, are to do is try to express ourselves and listen to our hearts. And De Botton points out that we can actually defend, the more ridiculous it looks on paper, the cooler it is if you're listening to your heart. Like, hey, maybe you haven't known each other very long. Maybe it seems like a dumb idea to a lot of other people. Or you're, you're super, super young, but because you're listening to your heart, we say culturally, oh, that must be safe. Uh, when actually, okay, one of the reasons... Uh, that we say prayers of confession every week is reminding ourselves that we're going to have desires within us and urges and compulsions that aren't a good idea. <laughs> There's things that we're going to want to do. Actually, that was not too smart. Uh, that was off base. And one of the, uh, God has given us marriage to bless us, yes, but to also grow us, right? Marriage isn't just about our happiness, but about our holiness. And one of the things that's going to happen in marriage is we'll discover how hard we were to live with, we are to live with, where before, and often this is what happens with your single friends, they just don't do the hard work of enlightening you. So you think you're awesome and swell to live with, but you're not. Just no one's told you yet. You know? And then when you get married, you realize you both can't escape, and so you have to be honest with each other. <laughs> You're like, yeah, this is, this is, that's hard. I do that. That's weird. Um, in this room, there are drawer closers where the right thing to do is to shut the dresser drawer the whole way, because that's what it's made to do. And there's another group of drawer wide open or just not quite closed, people. 
I've instantly divided this room into two teams. <laughs> Often you marry someone from the other team, and you just don't see it the same way. What's the big deal? Can't you see what this was made to do? It's made to go in the whole way. You, know? uh, you discover that when you're married. Marriage is meant, meant not just for our happiness, for our holiness, for our spiritual growth. And it's a, it's a relationship. It's based on the ultimate commitment before God forever. Okay, I commit before God in the world to love this other person no matter what happens, no matter how rich we are, how poor we are, or what happens to us health-wise. And you admit that you're going to need Jesus for that. But it's a commitment like no other. How do you, how do you practice for that? You don't practice for that by a series of no-commitment relationships. And it's ultimately a, a no-commitment, super low-commitment relationship when anybody can get out at any time with a my-feelings-have-changed card. My feelings have changed. And the view of maturity that we hold up as a culture, just thinking about the culture, is being mature is being independent. It's not needing others, and it's not committing to others. So that makes it particularly hard. When, when that's held up as the ideal, is to not need other people, not depend on other people, to be self-sufficient, it's then hard, particularly for men, to make a commitment that requires that kind of courage. Hey, I'm going to lock in to love you forever. Um, so what wisdom? Um, what wisdom does God give us for our community? A few things, real quick. One, and this is wisdom for the soulmate search in the Christian community. One, look for someone who's attractive in the comprehensive sense. Physical beauty is a part of that. It's part of God's creation. It's not the whole thing. Proverbs 31 is a long poem about a really cool wife, the Proverbs 31 wife. And she's admired for her competence. She's generous. She works hard for her family, for her community. But she's admired even more for her character and her love of God. Verse 30 in Proverbs 31 Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And how we need to uh, think about potential mates, we need to think about friendship and character. And then dating is going to be a little bit different. If it's in the context of community, if it's sometimes in group dates, you're going to be able to observe and experience, does this person, can they talk about their political views with someone who absolutely thinks they're wrong and be gracious? Or do they just get more strident and strident, more shrill? Uh, how is this person, not just over dinner and a movie, it's, it's a lot easier not to be a jerk over dinner and a movie, but how is this person around people that are actually really hard to bear with or hard to serve? Looking for someone who's attractive in the comprehensive sense calls us to be in community and actually get the input of community. Hey, what do you, what do you think about her? What do you think about him? Um, second piece of wisdom, and the scriptures are clear about this, is if, if you're a Christian, marry a Christian. And that's a command, it's not a tip. Okay? So he's, he's reflecting on this passage for people who 
became Christians, okay, you're already married, one of you becomes a Christian, yeah, you don't leave your spouse. Okay, God's, you're, and you're, there's nothing wrong spiritually with your kids from the get-go. You can trust God for them, pray for them, and stay married. It might be that you win your spouse over. But it's also clear in the same chapter, if your husband dies, hey, verse 39, your husband dies, the widow is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Marry a Christian. Now, why would God say that? Okay? Think of it this way. If you're a Christian, that's the most important thing to you. Why would you marry someone who, like, at depth, just doesn't get that, doesn't see that. They might be like, hey, you can do that. Go ahead. You know, it's like you're in the yoga. You can do that every Saturday. You can do that every weekend. But they just don't want to particularly get into that hobby. No, this is different. This is the most important, the most important love of your life they don't share. And you either have to basically turn down your commitment to the Lord so you can be committed to them or you have to turn down your commitment to them and how you think about your time and your priorities and what's important for kids and what's important for just your life you have to be less committed to them so you can be committed to Jesus or less committed to Jesus so you can be committed to them and uh, it's true in the scriptures and God says not to do that um third bit of wisdom. Remember the gift and decision aspect of deciding to get married. So you're going to get wisdom from friends, and it is a decision. Okay? Um, men, here's how to be a hero. Pers- actually, try to be the one who pursues. Put yourself in awkwardness, not her. I'm talking about pursue in a winsome, non-creepy way. But be the guy who says, I would rather I feel awkward or experience some rejection rather than wait for it to just fall into my lap accidentally. Like, uh, Christian dating will be more serious. It will be more intentional. It will have the goal of marriage. It has a destination. It's more connected to community that way. It's more open. And should, should we be surprised that this is hard? No. Should it be surprising that it's countercultural? No. For those of us who are married in the room, is it surprising that we need Jesus a whole bunch uh, to be, for God's grace to be fruitful in our marriage? No. Do we also need to remember this? Look, the real marriage, the ultimate marriage described in the Bible is the marriage between God and his people, Jesus and his, and his church. And in one way, we'll all be married, and in another way, we'll all be single. Okay? We'll all be married. At the end of time, it'll be God and his people, and we're going to be fulfilled by that in a way that we just experienced partway now. And you'll know who your spouse on this earth is, but you won't be married in the same way. In a way, you'll be single. In a way, all of us will be single. In a way, all of us will ultimately be fulfilled in marriage. And in a world looking for love, let's remember this good news. Okay, in a world, the world's looking for love. 
We are too. In the gospel, love has come to us. In the gospel, we remember how Jesus has come to us and claimed us and committed to us. And that's the good news. Uh, he's done what we haven't deserved. Uh, love has found us in the gospel. First John 4, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. That's the gospel. Uh, Liberty, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your saving, redeeming, claiming love for us. Uh, we pray that we'd be people who learn and recognize how we try to fill the void in our life through relationships, through romance, through work. And we would recognize things, these things as gifts, but we would not have them be God's. God, please grow us in wisdom, grow us in faith. We pray we'd be a countercultural community where we honor what you say about singleness and we honor what you say about marriage. Work in us, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, feed us now as we come to your table to hear a hard word. Um, give us faith and uh, renew our strength to live for you. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory. We pray this for our joy in you. Amen.